Welcome everyone to episode 71 of the New Gen Mindset Podcast. I'm Dan Kozell here with Nick Tartaglia. Nick, it was Grand Prix weekend in Montreal. Mm-hmm. Um, what a gong show. Uh, epic weekend, of course. Uh, apparently a lot of investors were around. There was like multiple yep. events of like speed dating at the Sofitel, which was pretty cool. I happened to walk in there. They said, you don't have a pass, you have to leave. And I said, okay, no problem. <laughs> and who wanted the Grand Prix? Uh, you talking about the race or the quality? I think it was. Max I don't know. You tell me. I don't watch sports. So you tell we're, me. We're we're not a sports podcast. We primarily focus <laughs> on uh, investing. But uh, no, it was a great weekend. Uh, it's one of those weekends that, un- for fortunately for Montreal, it brings the city back to life. Um, yeah. A lot of revenue came in. Uh, lots of people from all over the world were in. So you know, it's and at the those- same time of the event, you had Bitcoin that went below tw- uh, eighteen thousand dollars. So stole the words out of my mouth and mm-hmm. you know the segue was there because there was a lot of crypto sponsorships there and i just thought it was pretty funny how you know commodities have been dormant for quite some time um you know what we're gonna do today though we're gonna focus the attention on what's happening in the resource space uh we're gonna continue to build on that even though you know crypto is taking a back seat um there's been a lot of activity whether or not we've seen it um today i think ivanhoe metals or Ivanhoe mines just announced an IPO for an electric group. So it just shows you there's a lot of activity happening in the back end right now that investors need to pay attention to. Mm-hmm. Another thing we're going to do is we're going to talk about carbon credits. Uh, and we have somebody here today who uh, Nick and I had the absolute pleasure and privilege of meeting at the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference. Um, he's here with us today. So without further ado, he's the partner at uh, Inventa Capital, a private natural resource venture builder uh, and investment company. He's also the founder and CIO of Resource Insider, which is an independent investment research firm uh, providing investors access to exclusive research opportunities in the natural resource space. Uh, he holds a master's of engineering with a focus on sustainable development uh, and carbon capture for the mining industry from Exeter University and a Bachelor of Science in Mining Engineering from the University of Toronto. He's also the executive chairman and co-founder of Vita Carmen, uh, Carbon. Excuse me. Welcome to the New Gen Mindset Podcast, Jamie Keach. All right, guys. Thanks for having me today. So, Jamie, to start off usually every, with every podcast, we like to get to know our guests a little. So mm-hmm. can you just get, you know, tell us a little bit of your history, how you got into the resources or, you know, just tell us a bit about you. Yeah. You know, my my uh, my entry point into national resources might be um, different than most. It's probably uh, it was less uh, strategic than a lot of people. So I under I entered. um into a degree in mining engineering, uh, U of T, as you mentioned, when I was 17 years old. And I decided to go into that because I was in high school and I was really into like camping and hiking and canoeing and being outdoors and all this stuff. And I always kind of wanted to be like a outdoor guide. And I actually almost went to college to do that. And I went to college or I went to a orientation weekend. The guy was like, well, you know, this is a great job. And you can live pretty comfortably for 25 grand a year doing this. And I thought, well, fuck, I cannot live comfortably for 25 grand a year. I need to find something else to do with my life. And I asked my guidance counselor in school, I was like, how do I work outside and get to travel and still make decent money? And he told me about a friend of his who was a geologist that was exploring, you know, these remote jungles for gold all over Brazil. And I thought, you know, that sounded pretty cool. Uh, so I started looking into that. Uh, my dad's an engineer. He's an electrical engineer. So I started looking in the engineering route. And I was always pretty good at math. 
So that's kind of how I got into it. I wanted to work outside. I wanted to travel. I wanted to make pretty decent money. And so that's how I found mining engineering. Um, and that's what I did for the first decade of my career. I worked uh, in all sorts of places around the world on projects, everything from exploration stage projects. So where you're actually out there basically looking at rocks, trying to find new mines, trying to find mineral deposits, all the way up to development stage projects where you're building the mines and then later operating uh, mining companies. I worked in Albania. I worked in Mongolia. I worked in uh, the Canadian Arctic on Baffin Island. I traveled on projects all through Latin America. And so that's what I did for, for most of my career or for the first half of my career at this point, I would say, until I was about 30 years old. Uh, and then I kind of saw the writing on the wall and I saw, you know, I started to kind of wake up to investing and sort of more, call it macroeconomic trends that were happening in the world. And the big, the big eye opener for me was I, you know, I had a bunch of buddies from university, engineers like me, they'd gone and worked in banking or in finance in some way. And they were all making like four times as much money as I was. And I thought they were working about half as hard. So I thought, okay, well, maybe this is the right to go. And that's when I started delving into more of the business side and the finance side of the natural resources and the commodity sectors. And there's, I can, I can keep talking, but I've been going at this for a while. If you know. mm-hmm. when, when, when you came to realization about sort of the macro uh, finance or macroeconomics picture in your mind, because I feel like everybody has that epiphany at some point, especially when you're in the resource and commodity space. But what was that one thing yeah. that you looked yeah, yeah. at and you're like, yeah. Wait, there's something wrong in the world from a macro standpoint, but I actually understand it, and I'm going to figure out a way to apply this throughout my career. Well, you know what? Uh, I think I kind of had to be beaten over the head with it. I didn't come to it to, you know, I, I wasn't too clever about it. I was. It happened to me. It didn't. It's not something I figured out. It's something that happened to me. And so I can sort of paint this picture for you. I was. <laughs> How old was I? This was 2008. I was 21 years old. I was working and doing gold and copper exploration in Albania at the time. And I was making, it really felt like to me, boatloads of money. I was working in this remote camp in Northern Albania, right near the Kosovo border, uh, basically driving around in a Land Rover all day, looking at different sort of geological outcrops and taking samples and working with drills, et cetera. And on my time off, you know, you do kind of like eight weeks in and two weeks off. I was in Germany, <clears throat> in Munich, and I was drinking at a beer garden with these two lawyers who were maybe like late 20s, early 30s, a husband and wife. And they were lawyers for Lehman Brothers. And this was kind of like the first time I'd ever really thought about Lehman Brothers. And they were telling me about it and how cool it was and how much money they made. And I was like, that seems really great. And then I shit you not. The next morning was when the financial crisis struck <laughs> and I was watching this on TV and seeing, you know, the guys at Lehman Brothers walking out with like, you know, their, their boxes full of their shit. And I was thinking like, I guess those guys are fucked. Um, <laughs> and then I kind of sat for a second and I was like, you know, I think I might be fucked now too. And, you know, three weeks later I was fired or laid off with the rest of the field crew. And I went home back to Canada and I, you know, I ended up, traveling a bit. I ended up doing a master's degree after that. And so that was the first time where sort of like, call it the global financial markets actually became a reality to me. It wasn't something I ever really thought of before. 
you know, my parents, my dad worked for the government. He was a, he worked an engineer for the government. We were never really, our family was never really exposed to these sort of uh, the ebbs and flows of money in the world. So that was the first time. And I thought, ah, you know, it, it can't be that bad. And I, I was right because the mining markets picked right up after that. I had gone to grad school, I came out, fell right into another job. And then, what was it? A few years later, uh, I think it was 2013 hit and another recession hit. And I got laid off from another job. And that was the point, you know, I'd been fired two times by the time I was 27. And I started thinking, maybe I should start paying attention to what's going on in the world uh, because it's impacting my career drastically. And that is when I first started sort of reading about, okay, this is what an actual metal cycle is. Maybe I need to be aware of this. This is sort of the flow of funds in the world. And I started really thinking, okay, how do I start investing the money that I have? And how do I start preparing for this? understanding that I have a career and an expertise in a highly cyclical industry. So, so that's, that's kind of the origin story of, of me starting to really be aware of that and think about that and plan for that. So would you say that that whole experience and the cycles and stuff like that obviously kind of helped you develop a contrarian perspective of many of the macro guys in this resource sector, obviously talk about and kind of demands and the necessity if you want to thrive in the commodity sector? You know, what, what it really made me aware of is that there's the right time to be doing anything and, you know, being in the wrong place or rather being in the right place at the wrong time is still the same thing as being wrong. And I continually found myself in the right place at the wrong time. So, you know, would I consider myself a contrarian? You know, the problem contrarian that everyone considers themselves a contrarian uh you know every investor is a contrarian and there's a bit of a <laughs> there's a bit of a cognitive dissonance going on there but what i would say is i'm very aware that the time to buy commodities is when commodities are cheap and the time to sell commodities is when commodities are expensive and i invest my own money that way and i think a lot of that in in how i how i how i manage my capital but also what we talk about a resource insider, uh, our, our research service, and then venture capital, when we're looking at incubating new companies, new ideas, we want to be in companies that are not just the, um, the flavor of the moment. I would say that's how that, did I answer your question? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And do you, and what do you do now with the incubation and your, um, the new capital firm that you work with, or what exactly do you do there? So I'm a partner at Inventa. Inventa is made up of, of six partners. The ones that are, are best known are a gentleman named Craig Parry uh, and Michael Connor. Uh, Michael is the CEO of a silver, very successful silver company called Diesel Silver. Craig is a bit of a kind of a legend in his own time. He's, you know, was one of the founders of NextGen. He's a, the, the chairman of Skina. He's the chairman of Vizla. He was one of the founders of a big private equity firm in Australia prior to coming to Canada. And what we do uh, really is help sort of incubate, finance, and launch new companies into the, the, the mining and the energy sector. And so, you know, we started in precious metals, uh, but we've launched companies in copper. Uh, we're working on companies in, in different base metals now. And one of the big things that I've been focused on is what, what I would call the net zero trade. So... The net zero trade for me is anything that is involved in this transition of capital from traditional energy to new energy. You know, I when we talk about 
flow of funds and, and where money's going. To me, I see that as being one of the biggest transfers of wealth that I've ever seen in my life. And I think likely will see, you know, there's something like $39 trillion that is committed to being pulled out from oil and gas, traditional energy, and put to work in the new sort of green economy. And you've got the Black Rocks and every major capital allocator on down, basically squeezing their portfolio companies to decarbonize, to invest in green energy. You're getting energy and gas companies uh, getting carbon sort of taxes on them now. So I saw that as a big transfer of capital. A lot of the wins we've made in you know, my newsletter, Resource Insider, my personal portfolio have been in lithium, have been in uranium, have been in nickel, have been in copper, these, these commodities that are essential to this. So my focus has been on developing com- companies, particularly in that vertical. You had a really good presentation when uh, we were at Vrick, and I remember because you know I was watching. I introduced you at the time, and um, the best way to really explain this new opportunity. I actually just want to start off with one thing, like for for our listeners, is what essentially is a carbon credit? Because this is that yeah. next alternative vehicle <laughs> for investments that investors definitely need to start paying attention to. And I thought you did a really great job of explaining it to you know guys who are not yeah. so familiar with what's happening. And there was a good comparison to a, another company, which I'll let you explain, but go ahead. So, I mean, a carbon credit is very simple. And it, take a bit of, so basically you have companies that emit carbon, right? You have basically everything we do, whether it's an energy company, an airline, a mining company, what have you, these guys emit carbon. But you also have projects that, <clears throat> that either reduce carbon emissions or sequester carbon, basically suck it out of the atmosphere. And if you do those things right and you get them certified by the right governing bodies, and we can talk about that uh, in detail if you wish, you can generate carbon credits and particularly generate what are called voluntary carbon offsets. And when you hear companies like Shell Energy, like Microsoft, like Chevron, like Amazon, like every airline in the world say, we're going to be net zero by 2040, 2050, whatever it is they're committing to. What they're committing to really is buying these carbon credits to offset their emissions. And you got to think about it, right? When people are saying net zero, <clears throat> think about what net actually means. Net means the balance. It doesn't mean gross zero. If something was gross zero, it would mean your actual emissions are reduced to zero. That's important. Right? How does an energy company reduce emissions to zero where their product literally creates emissions? How does an airline reduce emissions to zero? Can't be done. So their alternative is to offset those emissions. And they do that by purchasing carbon credits. And it essentially like balances the teeter-totter, right? If you if you produce a million tons of greenhouse gases every year, you buy a million carbon credits you are now net zero. You've, you've kind of balanced that teeter-totter. And something like 25% of Fortune 2000 companies, so the biggest 2000 companies in the world, 25% of them are committing to net zero by 2050. And, 20, and this is all part of the Paris Agreement. You guys have heard of the Paris Agreement, obviously. They sign on the dotted line and say, yeah, we're going to be part of the Paris Agreement. You know, We love the environment. We're going to do all these great things. Here's what people don't realize though. 2050 is a long ways away, but 2030 is not a long ways away. 2030 is seven years away. And as part of the Paris Agreement, you have to be halfway there by 2030. 
So you have the biggest companies in the world committing to doing this and no plan on how to do that. Zero. So I'll give you a, a very antidotal example. Last year, the entirety of the voluntary carbon market was 100 million credits per year, sold at an average of $10 per credit. So that is a billion dollars market, right? <clears throat> Shell, the energy company, the big oil and gas company, has committed to buying 120 million credits per year by 2030. So one company, one company is going to buy the entire market plus 20%. And that's not it. That's just Shell. It's not Chevron. It's not Exxon. It's not BP. It's not Total. It's not Amazon. It's not Microsoft. It's not every airline in the world, every mining company in the world have all made similar commitments. So my view is that the carbon credit sort of sector or, or as an, an investment class is going to see a supply crunch like nothing we have ever seen before. And me as an investor, I want to basically get exposure to as many carbon credits as possible, as cheaply as possible, because I think they're going to be worth a lot more uh, in the next, you know, I, I was going to say the next 10 years, but I think they're going to be able to work well in the next year and the next two years and the next five years. You know, Ernest the Young just put out a report saying by 2030, these things were going to be $100 a credit. They were selling at $10 a credit last year. It's crazy. So even if we get halfway there, even if we get a quarter of the way there, it's it's a huge price escalation from where we are today. And how how can an individual investor, for example, like ourselves, how can we get a diversified ex of kind of exposure to that ecosystem? Yeah, so there are different ways, right? So you can actually, as an individual, buy carbon credits. There are registries that <clears throat> there are registries that basically act as the arbiter of this and you can actually buy and sell through them. So you have to go to that registry. There's two most prominent ones that are called Vera, V-E-R-R-A, and Gold Standard. You can set up an account, you can buy credits, or you, know, you can put your money into a fund. There's different funds that are buying baskets of these things, or you can invest in, in a carbon credit company. And you mentioned I'm the chairman of Vita Carbon. Carbon is a private streaming and royalty company. We do intend to list uh, within the next sort of within the next 12 months. But right now we're private. And what we're doing is we're building a diversified portfolio of carbon credit assets. So we're not buying the credits. We're investing in the projects that generate these credits. And we're buying a royalty on those projects, which means every time those projects generate credits, a percentage of them come to us every time, every year. It's it's a free cash flow vehicle at that point with royalties, right? Um, you had a good comparison too on the fact that you know we're at the beginning stages of when Franco Nevada uh, yeah. was essentially out with the royalty business, right? And royalty companies have been around for in the precious metals space for some time, so it's cool to see that evolution adopt into this sort of renewable green energy transition that you know global leaders are trying to push for tremendously. Yeah. You know, when I was going through university in sort of the early to mid 2000s, uh, royalties were really just starting to like really gain a lot of traction. They were taking over a big part of the mining space. And I kind of got somewhat obsessed with this business model, but there's some challenges there. So right now, a gold mining or sorry, a gold or silver precious metals royalty companies there's 22 of them publicly listed. There's a lot more private ones. Getting royalties 
is very, very, very competitive. And right now, when they're bidding on these royalties, there's, you know, they're not making much money on these things. These things have like a one to 5% IRRR, internal rate of return. They're not getting huge returns because it's such a powerful model and the margins have been squeezed out because people realize how valuable it is. And you mentioned Dan, Franco Nevada. So Franco Nevada was formed in 1983 by two guys. You've probably heard of them before, Seymour Shulick and Pierre Lasson. Seymour Shulick, you know, he was an energy analyst at one of the banks in Toronto. Pierre Lasson, he was an engineer, sort of entrepreneur, financier type. And they got obsessed with the idea of applying this royalty model to the gold sector which had never really been done before. I mean, gold royalties did exist, but no one had ever consolidated a package of them into a publicly listed company. And that's what they went out and did. They went out and picked up these royalties, very, very cheap. And these royalties, which were big and super profitable, and then they put them into one company, which became Franco Nevada. And you know, they did a few things very right. They got the right royalties for great mines, great projects that had good returns. But these guys, you know, they generated a 38% return every year, year after year on average for shareholders for 20 years straight. They outperform gold, they outperform royalty company, or they outperform mining companies. They like put the whole royalty company map on the map because they were so, so, so much more successful than the underlying commodity. Like you said, Dan, they were a cash flowing machine. Because what a royalty does is it takes it off the top line. You get paid off a of revenue, right? It doesn't actually matter if that mine is profitable. It matters if it's generating revenue. And so you don't have all the risks of cost overruns and, and escalating operating costs or capital overruns, et cetera. You just get paid as long as it's producing gold. And so today, Franklin Nevada is like a $37 billion company with 40 people working at it. They've got like net plus 90% profit margins. It's like, one of the best businesses in the world that almost no one outside of the mining sector has ever heard of. And when I saw the carbon space, I saw a parallel to that in that insofar that this is a new sector. It's not a new sector, but it's a sector that's growing very rapidly, I should say. And they have limited access to capital and it has to grow, you know, literally plus a hundred times to meet the demand for these credits. So I think we're in a similar position that gold was back in the eighties where people don't realize the value of these streams. And there's a very narrow opportunity to pick them up, put them in a publicly listed vehicle and see very high valuations. And that's our goal and need it to be doing that. That's what we're working on. And to go beyond the carbon, like the carbon credit ecosystem, are there other mm -hmm. type of like asset classes that you like specifically in relation to the transition of energy? Oh man. So, I mean, I, my portfolio, we own a lot of uranium. We own a lot of lithium. Uh, we own, I own a bit of nickel, but I want to own more. I own lots of copper, uh, all these things. I have a very fledgling investment in a green hydrogen company, but that's extremely early stage. Uh, yeah. So uh, listen, I'm invested in all that, but I'm also, I own precious metals. I own base metals. I also own oil and gas because I think oil and gas is literally <laughs> the other side of the same coin. Right. Because what's happening, you know, as money is being pulled out of the oil and gas space and put into the 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 um, like the green transition space is we're seeing re we're going to see real supply crunches, I think, in oil and gas. And the, the, the value of oil, I think, is going to be I think we're going to see it north of two hundred dollars in the next year. That's my personal prediction. You know, take, you know. Take that with a grain of salt. It's worth what mm -hmm. you paid for. But, uh, you know, I'm very bullish on the price of oil. I'm very, 
I'm very scared of the price of oil, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I'm scared of what's happening here. Uh, I'm really scared of the impact that it's going to have on, on every sort of everyday people, myself included, you know, mm-hmm. but the price of oil is going to be going up. That means the price of every fucking tomato that we buy here in Canada that gets, you know, drip farmed in Mexico and put it on a truck and brought up here is going to go up significantly. Ugh, I'm losing my word significantly as well. So it's a, I think it's a very frightening time and I'm developing my personal portfolio to really protect myself from what I, what I see coming. It's almost like you're, you're positioning yourself as a hedge against the hyperinflation that is almost yeah. inevitable. Um, think about what happens if carbon gets priced into everything, right? Like think about if every company that emits an ounce of carbon has to price that into their product, because here's what doesn't happen. The company doesn't make less money the CEO doesn't take a pay cut. Like what happens is the product just costs more. It's like it the, consumer the consumer that pays on it, right? Yeah. Your tomatoes worth more money. Your, your tank of gas costs more. Everything costs more. That's mm-hmm. like pricing carbon in to what we do will be the inflationary event of our lifetime, I think. So I part, part of the reason I started Vita is because I wanted exposure to carbon because I think, look at we, you know, there's a narrow window here where carbon can be an asset on your balance sheet. And in the very, very near future, I think it's going to be a big liability on all of our balance sheets. And, you know, we can debate the merit of carbon credits or the green energy transition. You know, I'm an outdoorsy person. I don't want to see the environment destroyed. I want to see, you know, I want to see everything protected. However, I'm still scared of what that process might look like from an economic perspective. I have, I have, I have one little fierce scenario I want to, go put forward for you it's one it's the fact that one thing i realized especially from look from a historical standpoint is when the government likes to kind of force itself onto the market and really try to push things in a direction beyond a kind of a logical process that you properly build a foundation and you build on top of it that it tends to cause a lot of chaotic problems down the line so one of my fears is that the infrastructure that we necessarily need for a proper green transition won't be built effectively. It'll be built through force and through um, kind of like low quality standards because they want, they're trying to meet an an objective based on time and not based on quality. So is that something that you might see as a possible risk, a risk scenario for this ecosystem? Well, you know, I don't know. You know, I don't know. I think on the one hand, I think we're kind of coming up on a major recession here. So I do think spending is going to be a big part of, you know, trying to keep the economy mm-hmm. going. But what I, what I will say is, you know, Ontario, uh, where I'm from originally, I live in BC now, but Ontario, you know, was way ahead of the curve on, on building out green energy before most of, if not any of the other provinces, you drive around Ontario, there's windmills everywhere. There's solar panels in many places, irrespective of whether they actually make any sense in Ontario. And the result is that like the power costs in Ontario are like exponentially higher than they are here in BC. Like, you know, I lived in a, when I lived in Ontario, I lived in a studio apartment in Toronto and I was spending like $150 a month on like electricity and air conditioning, et cetera. I pay like $30 a month here in Vancouver. And it's because of the, of the green energy transition. So will, will the infrastructure be shoddy, ineffective? You know, I don't know the answer to that, but I do think we're in danger of energy being 
prohibitively expensive for a lot of people. That's that's kind of what I would worry about. I think I think that's one area that Quebec got right is energy prices are actually pretty low here because we do have Yeah, well it's hydropower, right? It's it, same it, as BC. You know, that's yeah. why it's so cheap here. It's, it's hydroelectric power. Totally. Um but I wanna Ontario go... could too. So that's anyways. <laughs> <laughs> Worst case Ontario, as they say in trailer park boys. Um the oh I just want to go back to something you mentioned real quickly is like, okay, you know, like oil and gas, it's been a frowned upon industry for a very long time. You know, there's all this climate hysteria that's coming up, but it goes back to the fact that it's it's connected to everything, right? So we're in a very delicate environment, both psychologically and socioeconomically, of people saying, no, abolish oil and gas. And you basically said, I don't want to destroy the environment. And I think Nick and I are like, mm. you know, we, we don't want to destroy the environment. No one either. does. Who wants to destroy the environment? It's Correct. Like- what are you, an animal? What are you, a monster? It doesn't make any sense. Exactly. But it's like, you know, one of the misconceptions now is it's like, if you're for uh, environmental sustainability, you cannot be for oil and gas, or you cannot be for a clean sort of energy transition. So it's like, where, where do we draw the line? And what do we say to those younger people who are just getting into the workforce now, and are going to get a smack in the face of economic reality to say, Hey, there needs to be a transition, but it can't be one of total extreme and climate hysteria where people are chanting, no, like burn it all. We just want to be on wind at this point. It's a, well, the problem here is there's a lot of, I think, kind of propaganda out there in that people say like, oh, you know, we have the technology. We can just be on renewable energy right now. I listened to, this was about a year ago, I listened to a podcast uh, and one of the most successful venture capitalists of all time, Silicon Valley guy worth, you know, unbeknownst billions of dollars was on there. And he was, you know, he's very much on the transition to green energy. Great. But what he said was one of the big reasons why we haven't shifted to green energy is because of the entrenched interests of oil and gas companies. And that is such a fucking load of shit that like, it's absolutely offensive because the, the oil companies are not entrenched. They have a product that people want and people need. We were to you know, flip off the taps on oil and gas. A lot of people have to freeze and starve to death mm-hmm. for that to happen. And I don't, I don't think that that's a good thing. So the problem is that 80% of baseload power in the world is coal or oil. That's the problem. 80%. It's not the entrenched in- interests of oil it's the entrenched interests of everyone in most societies are reliant on base power, which comes from oil and gas. So there should and could be a transition, but it's not going to happen in the next six months, right? And so, I, you know, I'm an engineer. I, you know, am good at understanding numbers, and these are not very complicated numbers. Anyone should be able to understand them. And this needs to be a gradual and phased approach. And, you know, what we should be focused on is shifting from coal and oil to natural gas and to uranium. These are proven baseload energy sources that are effectively safe and massively reduce carbon emissions. And then with respect to natural gas, we should be very, very focused on carbon capture of natural gas, which again is possible. And we should do that in unison with wind turbines and solar panel and hydropower, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's, you know, there's not a one size fit all Mm -hmm. solution. And one of the challenges of this 
one of the interesting things and why I think carbon credits are so important is because we need to properly price energy. So are you guys from, have you ever heard of the concept, the tragedy of the commons? Have you ever heard of that concept? No. So this was a concept that was come up with in the 1800s by a British economist. And the idea is that resources that are not priced properly are abused. And when they talk about mm -hmm. the commons, you know, you think about England in the 1800s, there's the commoners, the common people. Well, in the common people had common grounds. So think of like the park in the center of your village or the field in the center of your village. Well, everyone's got sheep and goats and cows and shit, and they let them go run around out there. And what happens before long is that the sheep eat up all the grass in the common areas, and it's no longer grass field. It's just a mud pit. And this was a common problem at that time because those were common areas. Anyone could use them. Anyone could graze on them. So what happened is because the resource, the grass in this case, was not properly priced, it got abused. And how do they go around that? Well, they made people you know, pay to graze their, their, their livestock on this, or they had to own the fields or, or what have you. So we saw that you know, come to fruition in the 1800s. People figured that out. Then what happened in like the 1900s is people understood you know, the, 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 the danger and the problem with not regulating um, emissions. Emissions isn't the right word. Uh, outputs into waterways, right? Any factory, any business, whatever, could pump whatever sludge they wanted into the ocean, into a river, into a lake. And what do you have happen? You have places like Ontario and Hamilton where the bloody lake catches on fire in the 80s because there's been so much shit poured in there for generation after generation. And then what happened is the government cracked down and now we have sort of, uh, you know, you have, to, you have to clean your emissions before you put them out into waterways. And I think we're kind of just at the third stage of that, that like we've, we've pumped enough stuff into the atmosphere at this point that we're starting to see the impacts of it. And the problem is there's no price on that. And so carbon credits go to actually put a value on emissions. And that's very important because until something is properly valued, you can't take the steps to changing it. And mm -hmm. I think all these things have to happen. I just don't think that they should happen at the expense of you know, people's lives or livelihoods mm -hmm. or, or the whole economy. So it, it's, a, you know, it's not an easy equation to solve. But. Mm -hmm. We're seeing it globally too, right? I mean, it's inevitable that, um, you know, China, Russia, uh, Iran, like they're going to live off oil forever. There's no yes. question about that. Um, yes. And China is like, you know, they, they tout the, the green energy policy, but China's building more coal power plants right now than every <laughs> other country in the world. Combined. I was going to say. Yeah. It's so true. And it's like, you know, it's just funny, like the events that have happened the last two years, like you're seeing coal plants now reopen in like places like Germany now, which has always been, oh, we're going to yeah. be, you know, pure green energy, wind turbine. I'm like, if you cut off natural gas, you have nothing. It is like one of those more like it's one of those sources of energy that like diesel, like oil, it just it you can't live without it. I don't, I can't imagine a scenario where, where, where you have that. And you know, it's crazy. Angela Merkel will go down in history yes. as the second worst German chancellor ever. And <laughs> like what she had done, did to give away energy sovereignty of the German people to Russia is mm -hmm. put the world in the situation. That's why Ukraine is in the situation it is today. Because oh, totally. people thought it was fine to allow the lunatic despots of the world to completely control energy for an entire continent. And we're all suffering the continents. No one more, 
sorry, the consequences and no one more than Ukrainians. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's grossly blatantly neglectful. Well, there was a gentleman uh, by the name of uh, Donald J. Trump who warned NATO uh, allies about this and they laughed in his face. So I just yeah. I figured I'd, I'd throw that in there. But yeah, just going back to, you know, coal, nuclear, nuclear is a big one. Mm-hmm. Um, this is one of those sources of energies that's actually it is a green source, both physically and for the environment. But what do you think the world needs to really get over uh, before people start accepting nuclear is like, holy crap, we can actually power, you know, five cities the size of Dallas without actually harming the environment or at least emitting as much carbon as, let's say, fossil fuels in that situation. I think, truthfully, that people will need to kind of be brought to their knees with energy prices to, mm-hmm. to appreciate that. That's, I mean, that's what I think it is. You know, there's a whole anti-nuclear lobby out there yeah. That exists, and you know, maybe with good reason in some ways. You know, no one wants a nuclear disaster on their doorstep. But you know, we've come a long way since Chernobyl, uh, and I think it's. Don't quote me on this, but I'm pretty confident that like nuclear energy has like the lowest death rate of any form of energy, including <laughs> including wind turbines, because I think it's something like more people have died installing wind turbines than have died from nuclear energy. Uh, don't quote me on that one, but I have read that before. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's crazy. I, well, what scares me too is the whole this whole political movement against the nuclear sector basically inhibits or disincentivizes people from wanting to invest and on research and development that helps innovate those kind of asset classes to be more effective in their utilization. Yeah, I mean, look, man, like everything comes at a cost, and this yeah. is what you know the environmentalists. Uh, and, the, and the green lobby need to understand that, like, you want to have windmills and lithium-ion batteries and solar panels. Well, you're going to need to up the rate of mining by an order of magnitude in the world to actually do that. You know, there was a, a study put out. I can't remember who it was, like the American Automotive Association or something, something very credible. That one of the best ways to actually reduce greenhouse gases in in terms of the um, in terms of like the automotive industry is to buy used cars. It's simply like maintaining and buying used cars. Because if you think about it, every new car takes so much metal, takes so much lithium, takes so much, you know, petroleum products to put the bloody thing together that buying a used car actually over the life of that vehicle actually saves more greenhouse gas emissions on average than like buying a Tesla, for example. It, which makes sense. It's not, it's at, at sense, first, yeah. at, at first it's like, Oh, that should be co- like, what do you mean? But it's just common knowledge. Cause you don't need to produce something. Yeah. It's already been produced. Uh, materials. So there's, exactly. no need, there's no necessary yeah. new input of consumption of, uh, of oil or whatever, because the whole supply chain is built on oil. So if we're going to exponentially increase our, our demand on commodities, well, that means everything from boats to trains, to mining equipment, to trucks, to all that is all oil-based diesel and yeah. And yeah. I mean, it's, it's less sexy than, you know, buying a Tesla, but like, you know, you buy a Tesla, there's all the, there's all the, um, you know, the, the costs and the materials of making a Tesla. But if everyone starts driving a Tesla or electric vehicle, that means the whole grid needs to be updated. Totally. Right? And yeah. that's a lot of copper, a lot of steel, a lot of other commodities that are going to be required there. And it's not as, you know, 
it's kind of less sexy to buy a used car unless, you know, it feels less, you know, it feels less virtuous, but mm-hmm. you know, those are the numbers. Totally. Um, I know we're coming up here. We got about like five or six minutes left here, but you know, going back to when carbon credits started becoming a thing, what do you think is the biggest risk in that market? And I'll give you an example of like why I'm asking this question is let's say, and this is a very extreme example, but let's see if an oil company or gas company that emits, you know, a hundred percent carbon, could they just also buy the equivalent amount of carbon credits to make themselves net zero? Like, is that one risk factor and are there any other risks? So that's what I'm hoping will happen that they will buy those carbon credits and they will buy them from companies like Vita Carbon, mm-hmm. right? So that's the, that's, if you're invested in carbon credits, that's the ideal solution. Because again, you know, uh, uh, an energy company, a BP, an Exxon, whomever, their product is carbon, right? They're selling mm-hmm. oil. Like there's no, there's no reducing that. So, so yeah, they have to buy carbon credits, which means a flood of buying coming into that sector. So that's the actual best thing that could happen to the carbon credit sector. When I look at risks, I think, okay, you know, where, at what point does the world say, let's not buy carbon credits anymore? We don't want them. So I think, first of all, what we're seeing now is, is energy sovereignty is a, is a much more important mm-hmm. policy decision for every country in the world from the United States on down. And what they're doing is they're bringing energy production home, right? There are some, you know, we just, we're actually seeing tech billionaires like Elon Musk and recent, uh, Mark Andreessen tweeting about how we got to start drilling in the United States. We got to start producing more natural gas, et cetera, et cetera. So all of these people are waking up that we need to take the power out of the hands of the Russians and the Chinese and whomever and bring it home. But what's going to be the effect of, of bringing that home? Do you think they're going to say, you know what, forget this green um, energy agenda? No, they're going to say we're producing more energy at home. We need to offset that. We need to still create sort of net zero conditions. And so there's going to be more energy that has to be offset than would have been before because probably the Chinese and the Russian would would be a lot less concerned with doing that. So I actually think that's quite bullish for carbon credits. And where it becomes a problem, where, where people maybe say, okay, this isn't going to work, is when we are seeing rolling blackouts, food shortages, real, real kind of existential problems for, for society in North America and Europe. At that point, you can maybe say, all right, we got to get the price of oil down at any cost at that point. And maybe there's a, there's a relaxation on the need to purchase carbon credits. But we got a long way to go to get there. And you know, even if this market, even if none of these people actually hit their goal of being net zero, if they even go 10% of the way there, this is still a flood of capital into this space. So it's a, it's a very interesting opportunity. It's, you know, it's something that stood out to me as a kind of a truly generational trade that I was unlikely to see again in my lifetime. And I, I wanted to get as much exposure as, it, as I could. And so I did what sort of I like to do and what I'm good at doing is I created a company that built to take advantage of that. It's, it's huge. And I, again, if you're, an energy bull, right? And this could mean pretty much all of them that are efficient for the long term. This is a huge opportunity. I mean, there's no question about it. And I think the other thing too that younger investors just need to start understanding is, you know, this is not going to happen overnight. It's it's literally impossible. But that's what, like you said, that's what the propaganda machine keeps pushing out to feed people's yes. minds. And it's just not going to work. 
And the green energy transition, like, look, it's important. It's a worthy challenge. It's, it's probably, you know, it is in a lot of ways the existential challenge of our generation, but it, it is a generational challenge. It's not, it's not going to be done in five years, you know, as nice as it would be to flick the switch and we're all, you know, there's never a greenhouse gas emitted again and we're all running on windmills and solar panels. That's not happening. So we need to actually take science into consideration and, and, and plan accordingly. And carbon credits are a part of it, as are many other, many, many other things, as is oil and gas. Mm-hmm. Well, hope, hopefully the Formula One cars could start emitting lower emissions, even though that's also not <laughs> well, very challenging There's a Formula E team now. There's a Formula mm-hmm. E team. Uh, not the like, same, though. <laughs> it's not, you know, they don't quite have the same, you know, have you been to a Formula One event? It's pretty cool. I guess you're in Montreal. You can hear those things ripping around when you're there during the Formula One weekend. Exactly. They, they, they were pretty loud these last couple of days. There's no question. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Jamie, uh, where, where can the listeners, I think the, well, before I ask you where the listeners can find you, but I think the, 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 the lesson here is obvious. Like start buying carbon credits at this point, at least have some exposure to it, especially heading into this green transition that we're in, right? Well, what I would say is that you know, energy, in my opinion, is like the internet of the 2020s. This is where more capital is going to flow and more big problems are going to be addressed and hopefully solved than anywhere else. You know, I don't think the next unicorn is another fucking social media thing. I think it happens in the energy space and that'll be renewable energy. That'll carbon credits. It'll also be traditional energy. There's going to be tons of opportunity there and anyone who's not exposed to this in their portfolio in my opinion is making a big mistake mm-hmm. i mean the message is clear at this point i mean so i gotta start accumulating in my portfolio nick too but uh, uh J- jamie where can the listers uh find you yeah uh the easiest place is just uh resourceinsider.com uh you know we you can send me an email there uh, you can see sign up see our podcast we do weekly updates to people what we're working on, what we're looking at, and just sort of talking to interesting people in the sector. So thanks for having me on, guys. Yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah. And, uh, we, I think we learned a lot. This is a nice little mm-hmm. crash course on it, but there's so much to learn every single day at this point. So thanks yeah. so much for yeah. coming on here. It was a pleasure. All right. Take care, guys. Take care. And we'll see you next time on the New Gen Mindset Podcast. Ciao, guys. Take care. <laughs>